This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. and welcome to another episode of Cawthron Radio. My name is Natalie Bird and I'm a Senior Comms Advisor here at Cawthron and I'm joined today by Oliver Searle who is a Senior Marine Scientist at Cawthron Institute and has been here for, how long have you worked at Cawthron for Ollie? Uh, around seven years by now. Seven years, so he's not quite an old timer but he's been around for a while and he's here today to talk to us about a recent paper that he's published on a global phenomenon that is referred to as coastal hardening. I won't bother explaining it to you because I'll probably get it not quite right, but Ollie's here to tell us about it. So can you explain what it is and how long we've known about this issue for? So coastal hardening is essentially when original natural coastal environments like beaches and rocky reefs and uh, mangrove forests and lagoons get replaced by artificial developments that are often associated with cities and urbanized coastlines and the maritime industry. So you have gradual changes from these natural habitats that support huge amounts of biodiversity and life and ecosystem services to artificial habitats that are made from steel and wood and concrete and plastic and have very different characteristics. And this process is called coastal hardening or coastal engineering. It happens all over the world for many different reasons and it changes the environment. So what are some of the impacts of coastal hardening that we would see? What are some of the negative effects on the ecosystems that we're talking about? So first of all, there's very immediate ones. So displacing what are natural environments like beaches and rocky reefs or mangrove forests with built infrastructure which are essentially static structures made of steel or concrete or wood or, or plastic. The organisms and species that lived in these natural environments are being replaced by very different ones. And because everything in the sea is interconnected in terms of, if you think of a food web, then, then these drastic changes actually have wide-ranging repercussions. So what's a food web? Can you explain that a little further? A food web is... A hierarchical system where everything starts with the production of, of phytoplankton by microscopic algae that gets consumed by larger species who then get consumed by larger species again. You know, So you're moving from algae all the way through to fish or seabirds and things like that. So if you take particular components out of this food web, you are disrupting it often with effects that are very difficult to actually predict and certainly to manage. So impacts on food webs is one issue. What are some of the others that you're seeing? One of them in particular is that artificial structures, they are very attractive habitats for introduced species that arrive in New Zealand, either on the hulls or in the ballast water of ships, and that many people have heard of in the, in the news over the last few years. And these introduced marine pests, they have impacts on our native species 
in our waters, a lot of which are endemic, and New Zealand takes biosecurity very seriously. Now, often urban centers that are hotspots of artificial structures and coastal hardening are also the places where you have large shipping ports, boating marinas, and what we call transportation hubs, essentially, where different ships of all types come and go on a daily basis for tourism, for trade, for transport. And the combination of these two things, the the artificial habitats being so attractive to marine pests, but also marine pests being, you know, arriving to these places on a regular basis by international and domestic shipping makes them hotspots for for marine invasions, I guess, and sources for further spread to high-value areas that people visit for recreation. That might be islands or nice um, pristine bays or remote environments or marine reserves. So just for the listeners, what are some of the invasive species that we're worried about in New Zealand at the moment that they might have heard about or seen in, in coastal areas? Well, one of them that is has been uh, in, in the news for a long time now is the Mediterranean fanworm, Sabella spallanzani, that is infesting large parts of the upper North Island, in particular Waitemata Harbour, increasingly Fangare Harbour, and is also occurring in the Bay of Plenty now. There's a hun- another handful of species, for example, uh, some tunicates, uh, in Northland or or one that has just been discovered a couple of years ago on Great Barrier Island, Aotea, which is an iconic place and one that many stakeholder groups would like to keep invader-free as much as possible. An introduced seaweed has just been discovered there as well, one that New Zealand has been worried about for some time, at least a close relative of one that New Zealand has been worried about for some time. And I have to say that around Great Barrier Island, these marine species have been discovered in natural habitats, but if these became established in more urbanized habitats, they would likely have a much greater rate of spread and have much larger established populations there and have a much higher potential for dispersing through the country even faster. And this is because the urban habitats are likely to be weakened because there's been some disruption to the ecosystem there and it's more vulnerable? That's right. On the one hand, like I said, these urban habitats are often very attractive to in introduced species but also there's a number of other stresses going on that some native species are finding difficult to deal with and then you have these commercial and recreational transport hubs such as ports and marinas that are effective connections amongst different places around New Zealand. Hmm. Okay so back to the studies findings you'd studied urban areas in 30 spots around the world including Europe, North America, Australia how did you pull together a project team and and what were some of the locations that you chose to study and why? We originally wanted to understand what the rate of further coastal hardening and coastal engineering might be for New Zealand and to do that we had to look at overseas locations that were already had attained sizes beyond those in New Zealand so places bigger than Auckland for example. We established an international study team that included collaborators from different universities and other organizations in different areas of the world. And we identified about 30 international locations that occupy a range of sizes, I guess, in terms of population size, urban inhabited area, but that are all associated with coastal harbors or bays or estuaries, similar to the ones that where New Zealand's coastal urban centers are located. So you were looking for not major cities, but areas where you could see that effect, I guess, most starkly? We wanted to find a range of places that, in order to do some statistical modelling, you have to provide, ideally, 
a range across different factors of interest to the statistical model. So we included places that are very small in size all the way up to places that are very large in size. So our model includes locations reasonably small like Westport, but all the way to the size of Vancouver in Canada. Because in order to develop a predictive tool, the maths behind the model need to be able to work across the entire spectrum. So of those 30 cities that you studied around the world, what were some of the key findings in terms of the extent of the problem? So what we did is we mapped the different coastal habitats around these 30 international urban centers. And that included not just the cities or centers themselves, but also the wider estuaries or harbors that they were located in, uh, including uh, suburbs and and smaller townships around them, etc. And we found that on average, I think it was 52% of the coastline surrounding these urban centers are already artificial today and used to be natural, obviously, before the urbanization process. And to give you an idea of the scale, some of these centers, those at the smaller end, had a total coastline of, say, 15 or 20 kilometers. But there were some in North America whose total coastline exceeded 400 kilometers, of which already by today, more than half is artificial. So you have seawalls and wharfs and piers and pontoons where you used to have beaches and rocky reefs and mudflats. And at the upper end of the spectrum, we had some places that were already today are literally 90% artificial. And you can imagine that this is an immense shift Mm. in the ecological makeup and the functioning of these coastal ecosystems. Part of the aim of the study was to identify factors that you could use to predict how coastal hardening might increase in the future, right? So can you talk a little bit about what those factors were and why it's helpful for us to be able to to see what future trends might be? Well, given that we know that the change from natural to man-made systems along the coast has these large impacts on ecological processes and on ecosystem services and also on societal and cultural values. We feel it's important to understand at what rate we can expect further increases because if we can anticipate that rate or even predict where these further constructions or changes from natural to artificial ecosystems occur... It helps us to plan ahead and develop and implement proactive strategies to minimize the impacts of further development. And this is really important because there are very good reasons for coastal hardening to continue in some areas that need to be protected from the effects of sea level rise or increased storm surges because of climate change. But the important thing is that In an ideal world, we would be able to do it in a way that minimizes the collateral effects, I guess. Um, There are some technologies and approaches available to us already now. And if we do know over the next decades how much and where there is a need for more coastal armoring and coastal engineering, there is the opportunity to approach that with some tools available to us make the to minimize the impacts of that change so you can see the need in advance and prepare for it rather than waiting until it's urgent and then i guess it's less likely to happen in a really well thought out and and sustainable way if it's kind of meeting a more urgent short-term need yeah i mean for example one way is to try and develop these new constructions in a way that they actually attract valued native species Okay. And that they support native assemblages and the native species that we've been used to and have valued over the last decades and centuries. Can you give some examples of what that might look like? There are some 
efforts in different parts of the world to construct things like seawalls or revetments or intertidal breakwaters in a way that are attractive to not invasive marine species but to native species that you would like to enhance in these locations because they might have been displaced or lost through the process of urbanization. So you can use materials as well as structures or complexities in the materials you use that are attractive and supportive to the needs of native species. And so you can almost, in in an ideal world, create or garden and design yourself assemblages of native species that provide the ecosystem services that you would like to reintroduce or enhance in these areas. Cool. That's a field that is in its infancy, but there are some really good results coming out from several studies around the world, uh, including some work that we are doing in New Zealand. And that's only one option of potentially limiting further impacts of coastal hardening. And what role does the public have to play in this? Do they have much of a role or is it more about government or regulators or industry or is it everybody that needs to, to be aware of this issue to be able to help shape different approaches in the future? I think once the public knows that there are actually ways of approaching new developments that have less of an impact or that could even create ecological benefits, I think there's so much value, educational value as well in there, both for for adults as well as school children who can see there is actually ways of reversing some of the changes that we see in our nature documentaries. So kind of what you're saying is that you don't have to choose between development and growth and sustainable futures and ecosystem health? Well, one way to answer this might be we have the opportunity to introduce what we refer to as multifunctionality to some of these new developments. So instead of having just an engineering function, let's say a new wharf or a new seawall that docks ships or stabilizes the seashore, they can have features incorporated into their design that introduce, say, an ecological value by being very attractive to a native species that has become uh, whose abundance has decreased in that area because of overharvesting or because of urbanization. So all of a sudden you have a structure that still fulfills its purpose but that also provides some kind of benefit. An ecological benefit can quickly turn into a societal benefit or a cultural benefit if it's a Tonga or a Kaimana species for example. So there are ways of still undertaking development where necessary but by expanding i guess the scope of these developments to not just feature engineering advantages but also to provide certain values to environment and society and maybe cultural values okay now the obvious question is is that going to be super expensive to do is it going to blow out on costs in a way that makes it something that people won't be inclined to do or explore when when they're planning and budgeting for a big development, say at a port or something? It is hard to say because there have only been a handful of full or large-scale developments that have happened around the world in North America and in Australia. I think it's fair to say that compared to the actual cost of construction, which is often dozens or hundreds of millions of dollars, these further enhancements, in my knowledge shouldn't be a great additional burden in the big picture. The issue at the moment is that it's not easy to provide a solid business case or a a cost-benefit analysis to developers or regulators that would help them see what the net benefit over increasing timeframes could be in return to the added investment required at the time of construction. Now, I think that the net benefit 
at the scale of five or 10 or 20 years post-construction can be immense in, in many different ways, ecologically and culturally and societally. And the sea is also really rough on development on the coast as well, right? So if you can create, uh, I guess, a better functioning ecosystem, you might even be able to protect the structures that you're building from some of the harsh conditions that they could experience. Is that is that right? Potentially. I mean, traditionally, some structures are kept free of growth to prevent corrosion or other types of degradation. But for many of them, it doesn't matter. And if you then can create a community on it that is beneficial to the wider environment in some way by providing a critical ecosystem services or improving water quality or providing a source of food to an important other species in the area, then then this is a really important outcome and, and one that can have these longer-term benefits. There is currently a big effort being made at providing better quantitative information on the costs and benefits of ecological engineering and other avenues for enhancing ecological life in urban environments. Just because people do sometimes worry that it could be too expensive, but they don't know what the actual benefits will be. And maybe it's just a nice thing to have, but it doesn't actually work. So it is very important that we get better information on what investments are required to undertake ecological engineering and other approaches at the right and at meaningful scales. But also over 10 or 20 years, how do the benefits that arise from having made these investments, how do they outweigh the initial costs? And I think there are some very good reasons to think that they will greatly outweigh them. Okay, great. Before we wrap up, what would you like to see for the future? What are your personal values about the coastal environment in New Zealand that you try to uphold in your work? And and what's your vision for the future of coastal development in New Zealand? Well, I think New Zealanders are very close physically as well as spiritually to the marine environment. It's a very important uh, habitat for our native animals and plants, and many Kiwis identify with the sea and being an island nation. Most of us live by the sea, so we do have to balance the interests of maintaining largely intact ecosystems, but also enabling economic development. So that together with staring down the barrel of some form of climate change and potential sea level rise, there will be a need for more construction along the coasts. And I guess for us, for New Zealand, I think it's important now that we have the ability to predict or anticipate the potential for further coastal hardening over the next few decades. Now we have the opportunity to, in the knowledge of that, coming up with some solid and preventive and proactive strategies of lessening the environmental burden of these and incorporating all the benefits into it that we can. Great. Thank you so much, Ollie, for joining us today. Before I leave... I just wanted to mention that we've had a lot going on at Cawthorne recently. We've run the SciTech Primary and Intermediate School Science Competition and we recently held our 78th annual Thomas Cawthorne Memorial Lecture. You can actually watch that lecture online if you missed it on the night. If you visit www.cawthorne.org.nz, the full recording is available and we're set to release a highlights video in the next few weeks. So thank you so much for joining us today. Until next time, Matewa. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.